This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Troy Swanson, sitting in for Steve Thomas. My guest is Hugo Mercier, who holds the PhD in Cognitive Sciences and is a research scientist at the Institut Jean-Nicot in Paris, France, where he works as part of the Evolution and Social Cognition team and the Collective Intelligence team. Circulating Ideas is made possible through the support of listeners just like you. This episode is also brought to you with support from Syndetics Unbound. And don't forget to sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. The link is in the show notes or on circulatingideas.com. Today's show is brought to you by Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing. Syndetics Unbound helps public and academic libraries enrich their catalogs and discovery systems with high-interest elements, including cover images, summaries, author profiles, similar books, reviews, and more. Syndetics Unbound encourages, one of my favorite words, serendipitous discovery and higher collection usage, and was awarded platinum distinction in the Library Works 2021 Modern Library Awards. To learn more about Syndetics Unbound, visit Syndetics.com. While there, be sure to visit the Syndetics Unbound blog for news and analysis, including a breakdown of libraries' top titles and other stories of interest to the library community. Again, that's Syndetics.com, S-Y-N-D-E-T-I-C-S.com, to learn more about today's sponsor, Syndetics Unbound. Dr. Mercier, welcome to Circulating Ideas. I am so happy to talk to you today. As you know, the past few years, I've been doing interviews with librarians, journalists, other writers about misinformation and disinformation. And I'd like to get librarians out there to be thinking about the roles that they may play in our healthy use of information and to combat misinformation and disinformation. So I love your books, and I'm very uh, happy to have you here to talk to you. To get us started, can I just ask you to tell us a little bit about your research and your background? Yes, thank you for having me. It's It's a pleasure to be here. So I am a cognitive psychologist, which means that I study how humans in particular process information, how we evaluate information, how we base our decisions on on information that we have acquired. And in particular, I have studied reasoning and argumentation, as well as how we evaluate communicated information. So when you read stuff, when you hear stuff, how do you decide uh, what to believe and, and whom to trust? And so as a cognitive psychologist, the main tool we use is the experimental method. So we take a bunch of participants and we uh, give them different stimuli and we see how they react. But I've also been fortunate in, in being able to, to kind of read more broadly in the literature on influence and kind of propaganda and advertising and political campaigns and all of these things that are typically, at least partially, uh, treated by different disciplines. You are the perfect person to have to talk about our current information environment, I think. Thank you. Well, I'd like to ask you something that librarians see almost every day. People visit our libraries, they access information, maybe in a book, maybe they watch a video, maybe they read an article, and this new information contacts their memories and their experiences. Ideally, they learn something. Can you describe how, from the perspective of a cognitive scientist, how you view this interaction? In, in a very short amount of time, obviously, uh, the baggage, you know, the, our prior knowledge, our experiences are going to play a huge role in how we you know, acquire new information. Uh, so one dimension of that is how we understand new information. And obviously, for every person, there's going to be a level of understanding that they have based on their prior knowledge and what they already know. And if it's too complex or too simple, they won't find that enjoyable. They, they will lose interest pretty quickly. But that is not something that I've, I've really am an expert in. 
And the thing that I have studied more is not how we understand information, but how we evaluate it. And so whether you decide once you've understood it, you know, or at least once you think you've understood the information, how do you decide how much weight to put on it compared to your priors? Assuming the information is not completely in agreement with what you believed, how do you decide whether you should change your mind and how much you should change your mind? So the first thing that, that you notice is that, as I kind of hinted at already there, is that the main factor that will decide whether you accept something is whether it fits with your prior beliefs. If you already think that someone is a good person, if someone tells you of something good that person has done, it's quite plausible. If they tell you that they've done something horrible, you might be, you might be, you might be a bit more skeptical. And that's all very rational. Taking our priors into account uh, makes sense. Usually most of our beliefs are, are sound. And so it makes sense to use them to, to evaluate information. But we have to be careful not to fall prey to biases such, such that we, we tend to mostly seek information that will confirm our priors. And then we, we run the risk of becoming kind of polarized and, and overconfident. I love um, the point uh, that you made. How do we engage with the information? If it's too complicated, we're going to let it go. If it's too simple, it may not catch our attention. Even like those first steps are things that I think we don't often recognize when we're dealing with this in our libraries. And then the next step is, how does this connect with what we already know? And I'm, I'm always interested in those. I think all of us in libraries have seen those kind of aha moments, like the light bulb goes off. And, and sometimes that's the most magical time when mm. someone comes in thinking A and they read something new and then they go to B because they've interacted with something that they hadn't thought about before. So it's when, such a powerful we, step. I can imagine it's very pleasant to, as a feeling for ourselves, and it's nice to see it in others as well, that, that's for sure, especially if we've played a role in it. One thing that makes this kind of difficult, as you were saying, it's finding the right level to either to talk to people ourselves or to find the right resource for them is kind of difficult in part because we tend to suffer from uh, what is sometimes called a curse of knowledge, which means that it's really hard to put ourselves in, in the shoes of someone who knows less than us. Once we've acquired knowledge, it's really hard to pretend that we don't know it and to pretend that we're kind of a naive learner and say, well, how would I process things? Even if we had been in that position a few you know, months or years ago, you know, before, it's really hard to remember how we got to the superior state of knowledge. And we tend to assume that people know too many things and it's really hard. That's one of the reasons why teaching can be so difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Enigma of Reason, which is a book that you did with Dan Sperber. It was really kind of eye-opening, uh, a yes. big step forward, recognizing that we're not as rational as we think we are. You know, I think most people think of themselves as very rational, logical decision makers, <laughs> but you show, you really kind of turn reason and rationality upside down. So can you tell me how you view reason, especially through the lens of that book? Yes. So I will start by what you are describing as the, the traditional view of reason, in which people tend to think of themselves as rational. And on the whole, I think we are kind of rational, but more specifically, people think that, many people think anyway, including many academics, think that by reasoning on their own, they can improve on their decisions and their beliefs. So, you know, before making a decision, you know, maybe buying a car or deciding who to vote for, people like to think that if they really think very carefully about the decision, they will come to a better decision. And there's a lot of evidence, whether it's kind of experimental, historical, you know, kind of observational uh, evidence, suggesting that in many cases that doesn't work. And that reasoning on our own, we mostly think of reasons why we're right. And so let's say you're trying to think who to, whom to vote for. If you already have a preference for one of the candidates, it's likely that your solitary reasoning will just lead you to become even more confident in your choice or even more polarized in your choice of candidate which is uh, not ideal. 
So this is well known and well accepted in psychology. And what we, one of the things we do in that book is to try to explain why that is the way people reason and how they can reason uh, better. And our, our uh, hypothesis is that reason would have evolved to be used in social contexts. And in particular, in order to argue, like a, not to you know, have a shouting match, but to exchange arguments with others and to justify our beliefs. And so in that context, it is okay to be biased. You know, if I want to convince you of something, it makes sense that I should mostly give you arguments from my side or against your side. I'm not going to convince you otherwise. But in that context, if my arguments aren't good enough, then you will shoot them down. You're going to give me arguments for your point of view. We can actually get at better beliefs and better decisions. So not because reasoning evolved to be used in that kind of context and, and things work well in that kind of context, in a social context, when you're uh, you know, deliberating with others. Um, and it can, uh, it suffers from, from a number of kind of flaws if you try to reason on your own or actually or with people who agree with you, in which case you also do not have this kind of back and forth of, of a debate. So as the argument is happening, the reasoning is happening in the group context, it seems like there's some pieces that really are important then, like trusted people that you're arguing with, stronger yes. ties. Like, like You're not thinking of like the Facebook argument. There are many features of the exchange of arguments that will make it more or less um, effective. So ideally, it's good if it's in a smaller group, because if there's more than typically about five people at a dinner party, for instance, the conversation breaks down. Like you have either kind of small groups that form or you have people that take turns telling stories, essentially. Ideally, you want to have a small group of people. You want people who have some common incentive. Like if you're playing poker, you can't convince someone else to fold or whatever because they don't have the same incentives at all. When you're using an argument, you're leveraging something that the other person already agrees with in order to get them to agree with something else that, that you think is right. And so if there's no common ground, then you can't really find any efficient argument. And as I was mentioning, you need for there to be some disagreement. Like if you just agree about everything, argumentation might actually be kind of a, a bad thing. And this trust that you are mentioning, what matters is that either you trust each other or you trust the same sources. Because many of the arguments, if you're talking about logics or mathematics, you don't need trust because it's just kind of perfectly demonstrative arguments. It's just, is the argument good or not? But in everyday life, when you talk about politics or family or health or most of these issues, trust will come into the picture. So, for instance, if I try to convince you that you, know, you should get vaccinated, my argument is not going to be a logical argument. It's going to be essentially an argument from authority saying, well, look, it's completely safe, that there hasn't been you know, any major side effects and all that. And if you don't trust the authorities, if we don't share the same you know, background of trust, uh, then my arguments, you will understand them, but you won't accept them because they won't be any good to you. Can we dive a little bit deeper into this idea of intuitions? In the Enigma reason, you describe this interaction between the unconscious mind and conscious reasoning. And um, I think you're pretty convincing that decision-making often comes from these intuitions, which you call knowing <clears throat> without knowing how one knows. Mm -hmm. And then there's like an interaction between these unconscious intuitions and the conscious mind. Can you help us understand a little bit more what are these intuitions and then how does that interaction look? So... The vast majority of what our mind does is largely unconscious. So in, in psychology, in cognitive psychology, you know, if you're just even just, you know, seeing things, you, know, you have photons that hit your retina and the retina is essentially a two-dimensional space. And then this is translated into this rich colored three-dimensional three space that we have the impression of seeing. 
And we are absolutely not aware at all of how that happens. We open our eyes and magic happens and, and we see things. And that is true for, for the vast majority of the things that happen in our brain. So you make a decision and you don't think about why you make the decision. You don't ponder things, you, know, you just do it either because it's routine, because it seems obvious in the moment. And so that is how you know, animals work. That is how you know, humans work you know, most of the time. Then in, in, in some cases, humans are able to reason about their decisions or about their beliefs, in which case they will consciously ponder reasons for making decision A or B, as I was kind of uh, I'm talking about earlier. So if you want to decide uh, which candidate to vote for, you may think, well, candidate A has such and such strength and such and such weaknesses, and same thing for candidate B. And in that case, once you've reached the decision, you can tell people he's the better or she's the better, the better candidate for such and such reason. But even then, it seems as if we're the individual who is making the decision and pondering the reasons and you know, doing all this. But in fact, if we dig a little bit deeper, that is also largely unconscious for two reasons. One is that, as I was mentioning earlier, if you have a preference to start with, you will tend to pile up arguments for that person, thinking that you're objectively thinking about the decision, but that's not what's happening. And the other reason why it's, it's more unconscious than it feels is that we don't know why we think some reasons are good. So you might think, well, I'm going to vote for that candidate because they are very pro-choice. And, you know, we can't really articulate why being pro-choice necessarily is something that's very important to us. Even if we can articulate, you know, one degree, uh, then we can't articulate why that's a good reason. So there's always some kind of unconscious uh, um, inferences going on in the background. But in some cases, we're aware kind of, of more of them than in others. Sometimes reasoning becomes the excuse for the intuition that's already there, right? Yeah, that's typically what happens. In most cases, when reasoning affects our decisions or our beliefs is when someone else gives us an argument that we find compelling and that leads us to change our minds. It's much rarer that it happens really kind of within our own minds, completely on our own. So after reading the Enigma Reason, you could walk away with a dispirited view of decision-making sometimes. It really does deflate this kind of purely logical brain that's out there. But I was happy uh, with your next book, uh, Not Born Yesterday, because it actually presents um, a whole level of hope that, that we actually aren't as bad at getting fooled by other people as some of the research might um, suggest. And so I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that. And maybe a, a nice place to start would, would be with the idea of plausibility checking. So I'm just going to backtrack a little bit. People are better at reasoning together uh, than they often think. And then if people reason together in the right context, typically things will work well and everybody will end up you know, making better decisions or, or having better beliefs. And because we are led to, to reason with others you know, a lot of the time in our professional or personal lives, it's, you know, it's quite a good thing. So I, I, and the message on the whole is, I would hope, kind of, you know, positive, but it's certainly not uh, ego-boosting for many people there. <laughs> and, and then moving on to, to the other book, Not Born Yesterday. The main argument I tried to make in that book, and it's also based on an idea that other colleagues had developed about 10 years ago, is that humans are endowed with cognitive mechanisms that allow them to communicate information in a way that, that is quite efficient. And the basic argument behind this is that if that were not the case, we would be in huge trouble. So, you know, our evolutionary time, our ancestors, if, you know, some of them had been perfectly gullible and they could have been told, you, know, you should give me all your stuff and you should, you know, go do what I want, but they would not be our ancestors. And so we had to evolve the mechanisms to ward off uh, attempts at manipulation and you know, lying and all that. I think one of the most basic and, and robust of these mechanisms is plausibility checking, uh, which is something I've kind of alluded to earlier here. 
which is a mechanism by which we evaluate what people tell us in the light of what we already think or what we already know. And our first reaction um, typically is to reject things that, that seem implausible. It makes us very conservative. And sometimes you might tell me something that's implausible, but you know, uh, implausible in light of my beliefs anyway, uh, but that is actually true. And that is why, fortunately, we are also equipped with mechanisms that allow us to overcome this initial rejection of information that we deem implausible. And in particular, we use trust. So if you're someone who I really trust and I believe that you're competent and you have good informational access to, to something, then I might revise my beliefs. Or uh, we can use argumentation, as I mentioned before. If you give me a good argument, I'm liable to change my mind if the conclusion was really implausible. And that idea of trust gets at that social nature of knowing. And related to that, you note that we're equipped with mind-reading mechanisms that help us understand and anticipate the minds of other people. Can you help us understand what that means? Yes. So that's one of the things that humans are, are amazingly um, good at, just figuring out what other people are thinking. So obviously the main way with which we do it is with language. Most of the of what we know about what other people are thinking is stuff that they tell us or that they and ostensibly expressed through their very clear like, emotional or kind of nonverbal communication. And, and that is already, that's amazing. And it's fantastically complex computationally. But oftentimes, mind reading refers to the ability to understand what people are thinking just based on their behavior. And, and that is something that we can also do. So for instance, if I see my wife going to the kitchen which is shortly before lunchtime, I can infer that probably she's thinking of having a snack or making lunch or something. And that is something that other animals, and in particular non-human primates, are able to do to a limited extent as well. So they can infer what other animals know or what other animals think to some extent based on their behavior or based on what they can see, for instance. And that is really one of the crucial building blocks of our social lives. So that's what allows us to, to anticipate what people might do so that we can help them or stop them from doing something stupid. And without that, we'd be in big trouble. On the flip side of that anticipation, or maybe related to that anticipation, is the idea of open vigilance mechanisms, the idea of, of uh, being vigilant to protect ourselves from dishonesty. So maybe they're connected. You can anticipate what people are doing. You can also anticipate when people are trying to fool you a little bit or, or take advantage of you. Can you unpack these ideas for us a little bit? Yes. So open, these open vigilance mechanisms are the mechanisms that I was referring to earlier that allow us to evaluate what people tell us. So this kind of plausibility checking is one of them. And then the others are um, essentially mechanisms related to the source of the information. So you decide whom to trust and, and whom to believe. And mechanisms related to the content of the information. Uh, to, to, you know, to relate that to mind reading, one of the major cues that these mechanisms will take into account in order to decide uh, whether to believe someone or not is what we think their incentives are. So that's why when you're playing poker, the incentive of the other player is to win and, and for you to lose. And that's why you don't believe them, even if they're your best friend or your spouse or whomever, you won't believe them in, in a game of poker uh, because you know what their goals are and you know how that is going to impact uh, their behavior and what they might tell you. And these mechanisms, there's now a lot of evidence that these mechanisms work uh, remarkably well. We have the ability of doing all that extremely well, of, of making fine-grained distinctions between people of different levels of expertise or people who are more or less trustworthy, and that even young children have these abilities. Even infants, to some extent, can turn to someone who is more expert or someone who is more trustworthy 
how well do these mechanisms translate over to information sources that aren't people, like, like an article or a book? Is there evidence that they transition over? So what's interesting, first of all, is that we will use the same mechanisms uh, when it comes to to institutions, for instance. So when you read an article in the, in the New York Times, oftentimes you won't really pay too much attention to which you know, journalist wrote the article. You will just say, well, this is from the New York Times. Ergo, it's probably mostly reliable, at least in the, you know, the factual description of, of what's going on. And so essentially, we have these mechanisms that evolve presumably mostly to deal with people uh, and to help us decide based on our experience with these people who we could trust and in what domain. And we use the same mechanisms when it comes to, to institutions or to you know, groups. And so we can learn through experience that the New York Times is reliable in, in such and such areas and maybe less reliable in other areas that it has kind of biases and whatnot. And so we use the same mechanisms. And, and one of the potential shortcomings of this is that there are institutions that work in such a way that can jar with how we understand how things should work in the way. So if we look at Wikipedia, um, to most people, their intuition is that it's going to be very unreliable because you know anybody can intervene and it's free for all and all that. And as it turns out, Wikipedia is incredibly reliable. It's far from perfect, but it's very, very reliable. And it's something that our cognitive mechanisms have a bit of problem dealing with because there seems to be such a mismatch between the process and the outcome. And we tend to, as a result, underestimate the, the value of the Wikipedia. It, it seems like the awareness of what that process is behind the scenes really matters, right? Like when we get the New York Times in our hands, most people have a rough understanding of what journalists do. I think we could always learn more, but being handed a scientific journal with a method that you don't have any idea what that means, that becomes the bigger stretch, right? The methods in themselves can be very technical, but but even the understanding of things that are much easier to, to grasp in terms of what are the incentives of scientists and what kind of punishment do they face if they, if they engage in any fraud, you know, the, the hoops you have to go through in order to get a paper published and all of that. And I mean, the process is very far from perfect. There's no question about that. But, you know, when you see that in some domains you have a consensual agreement and something, you have like 97% agreement. I mean, getting 97% of scientists to agree on anything is quite, you know, challenging. And so once they do, you can pretty much, you know, you know, put, your, you know put money in the bank and, and that's the best estimate you're ever going to get. Yeah. Right, right. I think the big thing that we're dealing with these days is the interaction between our identities and self-image and how we interact with the messages around us. It seems like mm-hmm. as, as we're living in an increasingly uh, polarized world, I think especially in the U.S., who we are dictates more and more what we believe. And so I, was, I really wanted to ask, as we're getting to the end of our time here, how you see this relationship between identity and decision-making. Well, at, at least in terms of identity and information, communication, and, and what we decide to accept or to share, I think the issue is that when it comes to evaluating information, we still have some measure of objectivity in that if you see a piece of information that seems like complete garbage, even if it's spread by your side, you, you might not believe it, and vice versa. The issue is more in terms of what information we decide to share. We tend to think, well, you know, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and that's very important to me. And if I do anything that might appear to betray that cause or that group, I might, you know, lose some friendships and some relationships. Then we will be very careful to not share information that might make us appear to be traitor as a strong word, but someone who is not fully committed to the to the, to the cause. 
and vice versa that might prompt us to share information that is congenial in order to display our standing within the organization or the things that show that we're you know, a good person morally. So, you yeah, know, it's complicated because, you know, things like political parties are extremely useful and they have to exist for politics to happen in a way. So it's not just black and white and all of that is, is bad. Ironically, actually, in broadly the mid 20th century, the American Association for Political Science called for more polarization because they, they thought that too few people felt represented by the parties. And so they thought people should have stronger political identities. And to some extent, it is a good thing. You kind of want people to be interested. You want people to be invested. But ideally, you want that without all the nastiness that increasingly, unfortunately, comes with it. It's like polarization could be healthy because it represents a wider range of views as long as you have that ability to compromise and seek action. <laughs> unfortunately, yes. right, we're hitting a point where we can't even move forward on anything because we live in different worlds. Well, the ideological polarization isn't that large. Democrats and Republicans agree on many more things than they think, but their views of each other is deteriorating very quickly. Uh, and clearly, there's a, the you know, political problems that politicians are, are themselves increasingly polarized in their in their voting decisions and, and their behavior. Well, I don't know if there's any final thoughts that you'd like to share with librarians across uh, the United States and around the world? No, I, I'm just extremely thankful to you guys because I've, I've always, you know, I love libraries. And when I was in the U.S. in particular, I had access to, to a fantastic library and to amazing librarians. And it was pretty awesome. And I kind of miss that. Well, thanks. So I hope that all the librarians listening to this then go out and uh, pick up your books, The Enigma of Reason and Not Born Yesterday. Are there other books on the way or other projects that you want to share with us? So actually, one project I'm in the early stages, I like to work on nerds, all of us essentially, and trying to understand why we, we're, we get so interested by that very kind of esoteric, abstract stuff, science and history and all of these things that have no practical consequences. For, for you as an individual, it doesn't really affect your life usually. And some of us clearly do care hugely about all this, and we invest a lot, and we want to explain things and to argue about things and, and to know a lot of stuff. And, and it's just kind of weird as a behavior. I mean, we, we all like this, so we kind of take it for granted, but especially from an kind of evolutionary point of view, it's a bizarre behavior. And I'm just trying to understand why we're, we're so fascinated by information and explanations and arguments and, and all that. Well, you will have a big audience for the listeners of this <laughs> podcast. I'll tell you that. So that's fantastic. Great. Um, I love it. If our listeners wanted to connect with you online, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at Hugo Reasoning, and I have a webpage that you'll find by, by putting my name. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for your research. Thank you, Troy. That was fantastic. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guests, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Synthetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing for sponsoring today's episode. Visit them on the web at synthetics.com.